Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, a youth social mobility charity. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're speaking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a broadcasting legend, one of the first women to be taken seriously in radio and television. She broke boundaries with her arts and investigative programmes. But despite her stellar career, she was still dubbed the thinking man's crumpet by Frank Muir in the days when women were called autocuties and airheads. Her private life was equally fascinating. She juggled two children, a high-pad job, two marriages and a seven-year affair with the playwright Harold Pinter, who wrote a play based on their relationship, Betrayal. Even when she was behaving badly, she behaved well, one fellow journalist commented at the time. Now aged 89 and a Labour peer, Joan Bakewell makes it all look effortless. Yet she grew up very far from the establishment in Stockport, the granddaughter of two factory workers. Joan, welcome to Past Imperfect. And we're sitting in the committee room of the House of Lords uh, chatting to you. And you were recently diagnosed with colon cancer and you've been amazingly candid about it. How is the treatment going? Very well indeed, I think. Um, I had an operation almost immediately, which was successful. And in order to sustain that success, I'm currently on a chemotherapy uh, track, which will last until the end of June, and then I should be declared okay. So I feel quite buoyant about it. Are you actually having chemo at the moment? I've got it latched to me, yes, actually, to my body. And you don't have to be lying in a hospital? No, not at all. I carry it round with me for 24 hours, 48 hours, and then they arrive at my home, they come round, and they detach it and take it away, make sure that it's worked. And you don't feel exhausted? No. You're here at work in the House of Lords? No. I'm quite comfortable with it. Shared your diagnosis with Times readers. Do you think journalists are just innately curious about life, that even with the illness, you're you're fascinated by what happens and you want to share your experience? I think people are interested in illness and people are interested in how you grow old. As I'm doing both, (laughs) I seem to fit the (laughs) menu. Uh, And I've never felt... Since my experience of the whole Harold Pinter episode, which became, as you know, a play and a book and a broadcast and heaven knows what, I've never felt shy of just declaring my life because there's no gain in keeping secrets. I don't believe in secrets anymore unless you're keeping secret for some, about somebody else. I wouldn't go and divulge if someone else told me in confidence that they had an illness. I wouldn't divulge that. But I, I think there's something about being honest about your life. Um, which makes it easier to deal with traumas and problems. And I think the world in which we live now acknowledges that. There's all this welfare and well-being trope that goes through our society. I wasn't brought up with that. I was brought up to, you know, to be quiet about things and not make a fuss. Whereas now people feel if they can share it, it, it makes it better. That's good. And has your diagnosis changed your priorities at all? Do you feel you've got to try and fit everything in now? When I got the diagnosis that I got um, cancer, I thought, 
Right, I'm in sight of the end. I could be. I better think about it. And it made me very focused. I didn't panic because, you know, when you're nearly 90, a lot of your friends have already died. And I thought, well, I'm going the way they've gone and they've done it. I don't, you know, they did, it seems to have been sat at several deathbeds and held hands as people died. And it seemed quite a serene experience. I'd done a series with the BBC called We Need to Talk About Death when people came and did discuss what it felt like or what they believed it felt like as you were dying. So I, it wasn't, I wasn't ignorant about it. And I don't have any religious faith, so I wasn't afraid of being judged um, at, the, at the steps of the... Uh, Pearly Pearly Gates. Gates. (laughs) So I wasn't afraid of that. But what I did was I contacted my children. I told them where my will was. I told them, you know, what I expected. I wanted um, Jerusalem to be sung at my funeral. (laughs) I talked about things like that, not entirely seriously, but not entirely frivolously either. Mm. And it helped to bring it forward in my consciousness rather than burying it. And you probably spent some time thinking about your childhood. We'd like to take you back there. And you were brought up in Stockport mainly. And your both your grandparents were factory workers. What was your childhood like? Can you remember the early years before the war? Oh, I certainly remember before the war, and I did remember the war. Um, I was. We grew up. My family um, were aspiring to make their lives better. And my mother, whose father was a brewer, make, made. Um, he didn't actually make the beer. He made the barrels. He was a cooper, and she was very bright. She got a scholarship to a girls' grammar school, but she was she left because the family couldn't afford the uniform. So she left school at 13. She went to night school and became a tracer in an engineering company. It's quite exceptional for women to do this. My father, who um, grew up, his parents died when he was about eight, so he went. He had the fortune to go to Chetham School, which is now the great music school in Manchester, but which in those days was a, a, technically an orphanage. I mean, he went for children, took in children who had no fathers. And that was a very good discipline too because it was a marvellously thoughtful school. It was very severe, uh, um, but he had access to a library and books and aspirations. So both of them, aspiring together, came together and thought, we must improve our lot. And they, guess what they did? They moved from living in terraces to living in a semi-detached. That is a real social move if you're in pre-war Manchester, to move from a terrace house in the centre to a, a leafy suburb where they've got a front garden and a back garden and a semi-detached house. Amazing. And were they very ambitious for you? Did they yes, push they were. you on a lot? Yes. I, I was the elder of two daughters and they were very keen that I did well. They made a point of helping me but not subverting it. I remember my father sitting next to me when I was doing my school homework reading a book and he said I'm not going to tell you the answers all the way to write this essay but if there's anything you need to know just turn to me and we can discuss it so he was really part of my education they kind of worked me hard so that I got a past the 11 plus at which stage I went to a state grammar school for girls which of course was a new concept in those days and that was a very um focused school that believed in getting its girls on it was very severe the disciplines were ridiculous i mean you weren't allowed to run in the corridor speak in the corridor talk on the stairs (laughs) (laughs) it was very uh, and i was always in trouble i was always in detention because i never stopped talking but you became Um, head girl didn't you i became yes head girl head of house all that kind of thing so i did learn to stand on a platform and speak um, and I, I enjoyed it very much because the I enjoyed the company of other girls. My sister was six years younger than me, 
um, that really didn't constitute the kind of company I need. So the kind of groups of girls who get together in girls' schools was really important to me. Um, I still get a Christmas card from one of them. Yeah. Um, and we, we, we ganged up together to do things and to we were rivals. We were keen on different subjects. I was tremendously keen on my lessons. I thought lessons were lovely. I just adored history particularly. <laughs> um, and I played a bit of tennis, not very well, but I enjoyed that too. So I was very happy at school, very happy at school. Um, I think that was probably accentuated by the fact that my parents lived in a certain tension between each other. Um, I never understood what it was, but there were certain dilemmas and certain times where there was I could smell the tension between my parents, who didn't let on to anything as obvious as unhappiness. That wasn't the sort of thing you did in those days. But I suspect since, because I've talked to other women in my generation who had unhappy parents... It, my mother was frustrated. Mm. She was bright. She got the scholarship at 12. She'd become a tracer at an engineering work. But when she left and married, that was her duty. Her duty was to become a housewife and a mother. She never chose to become a housewife and mother. It was just what the convention was at the time. And it left her very frustrated because she had a good brain. Mm. And my father did not want her to have a job because he was aspiring to be management. He became very successful and in those days your wife stayed at home and kept a beautiful house spotless no dust every cushion plumped on the sofa nothing no nothing untidy doesn't make for a growing child I tell you <laughs> no so there was a tension there and when I got away to school I was able to be much more myself and you went to um, South America at one stage, didn't you? Was that your father's job? My father's job, he was an engineer. He worked for an engineering company um, in uh, Cheadle, in uh, outer Manchester. They were commissioned to build silos to transfer the wheat from South America onto the ships for where it would travel around the world. And he was commissioned to, to go out to South America to supervise the building of these silos because he was an engineer and knew how to do it. And my mother knew enough, and he, she went along too, and she knew enough to be able to talk to him about what it was he was doing. And they both learned to speak Spanish. They spoke Spanish to each other to avoid my hearing what they were saying. <laughs> and um, they had richly a rich time because they would have been in their 30s, um, successful, a love, and they went with a whole gang of people who were also operating this. So if you think a lot of you know young people going out to build something important, they had a good time. And what was it like as a child? What do you remember? Well, I was spoiled terribly because <laughs> um, uh, I remember we went on a, a ship. There was nobody flew in those days. It, all, it was all liners. And we went on a huge liner. And when we were leaving Southampton, there were whole loads of people on the dock waving and scarves and screaming and laughing. And my parents allowed me to believe it was because I, for me. <laughs> but when, um, when I eventually found out what it was, it was because there was a very famous band leader and singer called Harry Roy, who had a big brass jazz band at that time. And he was going on a tour to South America as well. <laughs> and he was on this boat. And, of course, um, my parents being young, the same age as the band, we all got to know each other. And they absolutely sport me rotten. I mean, I've, got, I've still got photographs of me sitting on the knees of the saxophonist and the violinist. Um, it's all signed to my little darling Joan with love from, you know. And they were wonderful musicians. So I heard, heard a lot of lovely music. My mother dressed up in the evening to go down to dinner with my father. And they had a wonderful time. And so I, it rubbed off on me. And uh, it, I think it took about three weeks to cross from Southampton to Buenos Aires. We stopped off at one or two places and um, we stopped off, at, I remember, in Portugal uh, on the way. And um, so I saw foreign countries and I, I just 
knew about foreign countries that they were out there. And there was, when we went to Brazil, we landed and went to a beach in Rio. And I still have a photograph of myself standing next to a little black girl. She was a maid in somebody's house. My parents took the photograph because I had never seen anyone black before. And they thought it was interesting if I should have my photograph taken with her. Now, whether that would today would count as colonialism or patronising, I don't know. But the, I, there is the photograph of me meeting a black person for the first time. She was a sweet little girl. She had an apron and she had charges she was in charge of and she was pleased to have her photograph taken. So I came away thinking, oh, I see, some of the world is black. And, and that was a real shock, obviously, because yeah. I knew nothing about things like that. It must have completely opened your eyes to a whole other way of life, didn't it? Well, it did, but I didn't really see... I was only five and six so it took me I was taking in things like different pavements I was closer to the pavement than at home and I remember cobble streets um, exotic plants big palm trees and mm. things like that and we climbed you know the wonderful Christ at the top of the we climbed that I mean we went up there and so I knew the places had extraordinary um, artifacts and churches but of course it was all Christian I was part of a community that was Christian we visited Christian countries didn't know about anything else um, nor did I know that you could question it and say is this true or not I didn't get round to that till I was about 12 mm. but um, so I felt comfortable and of course enormously cherished within my parents bond and uh, we were it was lovely and it was on the way back that my sister was conceived um, uh, and she was born in the early years of the war so they must have had a real shot when they came back and then you go the straight war was, into that the war threatened everyone's happiness and the war was seen as a, a terrible wickedness unleashed on the world and indeed it wasn't long because they were bombing blitzing manchester in no time at all i don't have much recollection of that i remember Two things, really. My father going out and digging an air raid shelter in the garden, which he took a spade and dig a huge hole in the garden and got some coronated um, on and put it over the top, covered it with turf, and we had steps down. And, my, and he also built bunks down there so that my daughter, my sister and I could sleep there. It was full of spiders. And oh. I was, lived in dread of having to go there, not because of the, the bombing, but because of the spiders. <laughs> and he used to carry me down. When the alarm went, uh, the area had siren, he would get me from my bed and carry me down the steps to the spiders. And I would, we would all stay there until the all clear went. Now, I, that was so that was at the, quite at the beginning of the war. Then I do remember the Blitz in Manchester, because my father took me out. I don't know. We obviously weren't in danger at that time, but he lifted me up. Uh, and said, looked over the hedge, and there was a, like a huge sunset in the distance. And he said, that's Manchester burning. And I remember thinking, a city burning? How can that be? And he said, it's entirely on fire, and that is what the Germans have done. And much later, I, I swapped reminiscences with John Peel, the DJ, and he said, my father took me out into the garden in Liverpool and said, that's Liverpool burning. <laughs> so the whole of the north, you see, was under attack because of the shipping uh, aircraft were taking off there and being manufactured very near us. And so the Germans really went for Liverpool and Manchester. Terrible damage was done, terrible damage. My father wanted to acquaint me with how dangerous this was mm. and how wicked the Germans were. And I grew up hating the Germans. I was taught to hate the Germans. I thought they were all wicked and were terrible and we had to defeat them, which of course we did. And then we claimed, I remember the victory and the victory marches in which, of course, Britain won, 
nobody mentioned the Russian contribution <laughs> or indeed anything like the resistance in France or anything. We won the war with a bit of help from the Americans. And then we celebrated enormously because by then, you see, the war broke out when I was 39, when I was six, and then it ended when I was 12 or 13, which was beginning to be a teenager. So mm. the parties at the end of the war were just timed right for me. Mm. And I remember that <laughs> being great. And I remember, I mean, one of the big... Um, delights about the end of the war which you know who would care about this now all the lighting had been turned off in the streets and the shops and when the shop lit up it was dazzling I'd never seen anything like it lights in shop windows left on all night <laughs> who could dream of such a thing and of course it, I was thrilled and uh, exhilarated by it all do you remember being frightened during the war or was it quite exciting at night? I think we were all frightened of something, I wasn't frightened of being killed. I wasn't frightened of being damaged. I think I was frightened that something might happen to my parents. My father, because of his engineering role and his age, he cut between the two wars, um, was in a reserve employment, so he didn't go to the war. But my uncle Ted went and became um, part of the RAF and wrote me letters telling me, you know, that he was okay and things like that. And my auntie May became a manageress in the um, Naffy Canteen and was able to occasionally, surreptitiously, pass us little bits of butter, <laughs> and little bits of ham, which she'd nicked from the Naffy stores. She was wonderfully generous like that. She was my godmother and I adored her. But, I mean, the idea of having a ham sandwich illicitly purloined from the Naffy canteen <laughs> was the greatest thrill in the world. And would you think you were closer to your mother or father? Because you sound as if you were very close in those, to your dad. I was very close to my father because he paid me such attention um, to my getting on in the world. He wanted me to pass exams and do well. And he was interested in learning with me. Um, my mother, I, I've spoken about this to women of my generation too since that time. I think my mother was pleased that I got on, but I think she saw that there, but for the grace of God, she could have done the same, and she'd been denied that. And I think that gave her a great conflicted dealing with me. And so she was very severe with me if I was wrong or if I did something wrong. Um, you, with all your opportunities, you know, when you think what I've done for you, she had that view of a sort of... Diff she'd been denied things, and I was n not denied them. And although she didn't want to deny them to me, she did rather wish she'd had those chances... That's so interesting. So she's resentful rather than aspirational for you. She was both, and that mm. made her very confused mm. about things. So she was irritated when I didn't do things wrong. She was very severe with me when it came to teenage life and boys, and she wanted me to be absolutely obedient to her. I mean, I do remember when I was about 15, um, I started to put on lipstick when I went out, never at home. I used to put on lipstick, and I remember going home and rubbing my lips before I went home so she wouldn't notice, and I went in and she said you've been wearing lipstick. And she made me scrub my face because I wasn't doing what she wanted me to do. And she wanted to retain control of my life at just the very stage when I was kicking free. And every girl knows that. I don't know what it's like now. I'd had it with my, my own daughter. Um, you do find that you want to control more than they ever want you to control. And the break has to be made. But she made it quite hard for both of us. And, of course, in those days, you didn't read advice columns about tensions and unhappiness. You were just told to get... You just got on with it, you know. And when you got into Cambridge and got a scholarship, were you shocked or 
Did you think you might get it? I mean, you were head girl and you're obviously very I bright. worked hard. Mm. I was SWAT, I suppose. I thought that was the way out. But also, I love learning. I rather still do. I've not given it up. There's nothing as thrilling as taking a subject that you enjoy. Nowadays, you Google it and you print out the articles and read it, um, Wikipedia and so on. But then I was absolutely engrossed just by the textbooks and um, the school library. Well, not a very big library, but I took out all sorts of books that I didn't know anything about. I mean, I really loved that. And I loved reading. I just sort of went through all the classics in that time. That's what we did, the Victorian classics, you know, Middlemarch and the and Dickens, and, and that was wonderful. I like being ill because you stayed in bed and read. <laughs> and what was it like arriving at Cambridge? Did you feel you had to change your accent or moderate your I had behavior? to change everything when okay. I went to Cambridge. Cambridge was the pivotal moment in my life. It changed everything. And I still feel that now. And when I go back there, I can sense... This is the place mm. that changed everything mm. for me, changed all my attitudes. First of all, it was full of people my generation, which I hadn't been used to. Um, far more men than women. I mean, there were 14 colleges, two of them were women only, mm. and the rest didn't have any women at all. I was quite a pretty girl, which made me available. That was quite exciting. I um, was studying subjects I loved. I did economics and I did history. I studied history under one of the great historians, Eric Hobsbawm, and I adored it. And I somehow, sometimes think I wish I'd become a, um, a historic, an, an academic and mm. study history. I would have enjoyed that. Mm. Um, so, but also the social life and the ease with which people discussed ideas, because nobody at home had discussed the theories of Keynes economics, because yes. they never, never heard of Keynes. Um, and I, the exchange of ideas was the most thrilling thing about Cambridge. I'd never. Imagine anything like that with people your own age who were bright enough to and had obviously mostly, of course, been to public school. So they had the kind of classical education mm. they knew about the whole Greek and Roman traditions. And I was boggle eyed by all this. And I've, I still am. I mean, I'm still impressed by people who know lots of stuff. I think it's a wonderful thing. You know, I watch them on the television gasping at their knowledge and I, my admiration and a certain envy, you know, oh, I wish I could have gone that way. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, I enjoyed where I was and I enjoyed what Cambridge brought to me. The fact that, you see, the teachers weren't severe. They were your friends. They wanted you to do well and understand the subjects that they did. I found that amazing and the friendship of older people. And Newnham was wonderful. Newnham, of course, single sex. Um, lots of rules about how you control the arrival of men into your life. But nonetheless, a beautifully um, architectural place, a beautiful garden, caring uh, people to look after you, as long as you kept the rules. One of my friends got pregnant. Mm. We all said at some point, it became obvious, he said, We're going to have to, you're going to have to tell the tutor. And she went to tell the tutor, who said, you must go and tell the principal. And the principal said... Go to your room, pack your ta your suitcase. You're on the next train out of Cambridge. Oh. And she was never let back. She was never let back. Yeah. She was not not let back until about 35 years later, when they looked through the records and said, "We see that you were expelled from Newnham because of this, and we deeply apologise. Values have changed, and we'd be very pleased if you'd come and take your degree." And she wrote back and said, it's too late, mm. it's too late. Mm. But we rallied round. I mean, she did, she did marry the father. They stayed married for 60 years, totally happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, there was nothing wicked about it except it broke the rules. Yeah. So we all, I mean, I do remember going to the wedding. They had a wedding in, uh, 
in London, very informal affair. Uh, and we knew that they would set up a happy home, which they did, mm-hmm. with more success than many of us. Mm-hmm. Because it was really before the whole 60s, 70s... Oh, certainly. Uh, yes, this, revolution, this is you it? had to behave. You kept the rules. Mm-hmm. And were your um, parents very strict about people being divorced and about... Oh, yes. Never mind divorced. You're dying your hair. <laughs> right. I mean, so did you, you know, meet anyone who'd ever been per- divorced? Peroxide blondes were absolutely out. Because they, were, they, were, they, were they cheapened themselves. So there was a, a sort of strange code of behaviour, which I didn't really get the hang of. I knew I had to break it. I knew it wasn't really relevant, but it had something to do with the church. You see, there were three units that governed life in those days. There was the family unit, there was the school unit, and there was the church unit. And they were all collaborate. They all ran along the same tracks. So where was rebellion to come from? They all agreed with the same values. Um, Now it's completely different because you have defiant parents, divorced parents, you have uh, the church being disqualified and (laughs) questioning its values. So, um, but then you had the powerful forces of such social um, direction. It was hard to defy. And also hard to define. Yeah. What effect did the going to Cambridge have on your relationship with your mother? Did that make it even harder? Did she really feel angry about that? And did it change My mother tried to control my relationship with Cambridge. She insisted she bought all the clothes that I wore there. What did you wear? Rather formal little... um, Little cardigans, Little suits, tailored suits. She had one party dress made for me by the local... Um, seamstress in Stockport, which wasn't the height of fashion. So did you go and buy lots of miniskirts? No, I didn't. We didn't have any money. Miniskirts hadn't arrived, Mm. and I didn't have any money. Mm. I do remember buying some black corduroy trousers, (laughs) and my mother finding that really shocking. (laughs) And trousers were pretty unusual in women in those days. You didn't go to a lecture in trousers, as I remember, because you had to wear a gown, and you also... It wasn't what women did. And did you uh, act or anything? Yes, I w- yes I did. I acted quite a lot, and I loved that. Of course, that's wonderfully liberating because you've got other people's dialogue to speak, so you can vent all your exp- expression of yourself through the characters. I was in um, Chekhov. I was in Month in the Country. I was in some Shakespeare. I was in an ennui play called The Point of Departure. I was in Peter Hall's first production. Um, before and he it? went on to run the National Theatre, yeah. of course, the Royal Shakespeare. He, he he was a young student there in his first year, and he was had this production, and he asked me to be part of it. Did um, you have any great love affairs? Um, well, I was always falling in and out of love because I but I didn't really understand it. Um, I was overwhelmed by the emotional attachment which is I, which I made with various young men, um, and uh, I didn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, and sometimes it was returned briefly, not very often, um, and sometimes it wasn't. But I, I was observing my own generation who were li- taking much greater risks, you know, witness the woman who had got pregnant. Um, and I was far too timid to venture that far and got very um, heartbroken by people who um, flirted with me and, as it were, brought me on and um, then abandoned me because I was really rather frousty I think I'm just rather old-fashioned so I was learning all the time but I was teaching myself my emotional life and that was you know that's when I say I learned a lot to Cambridge I did it by observing asking questioning I do remember for example early on before I went to Cambridge I went to communion to take classes to be confirmed and I remember having the lessons from the bishop and putting our hand up and saying why is and why is any of this true 
And there was a sort of silence. And, of course, what's the answer? And his answer was, you know, centuries of belief and all the most brilliant people. And I remember thinking, hmm, but they were human. Where did they get it from? And I remember then thinking, if you ask a really defiant question, sometimes the adults don't have the answer. Mm. And that was quite a useful lesson to know because it made me, when I went to study, and I remember um, studying under Eric Hobsbawm and, and saying uh, he was teaching me... Um, industrial history and we were talking about the Luddites or I was and talking about saying of course then the Luddites you know got um, stopped progress and did this and he said you've got Joan you've got to learn two things you've got to learn what was the evidence and what was the motive and of course he was a great Marxist and he said the Luddites were behaving because they wanted to improve the living of their people and I remember thinking I've I've brought from him an insight that I haven't had before, mm. that you must listen to the evidence and think about it carefully, not just assume Luddites are wicked people, mm. which I had un until that point. So an encounter with someone like that was really impressive. And I also made a point of going to lots of lectures which I wasn't required to go to. I went to hear Pevsner talk about architect uh, architecture. I, um, I heard Noel Annan discussing Virginia Woolf, whom he'd known. Um, so I would go and see lecturers who were famous lecturers and lecturing in those days was something of a performance the hall would be full the lecturer would sweep in with his um, notes and his gown flowing and the, and give a great performance and I heard Dylan Thomas speak like that at the union wow. and Dylan Thomas was wonderful um, little man black curly hair um, came on with lots and lots of notes and he started with a beautiful English accent to read these notes and then he suddenly slammed the notes down talked with his Welsh accent and said that's enough of that now let me tell, talk to you and he talked and we all thought he's made an exception for us to talk like this to us of mm. all people and we went for reception afterwards and I had a drink with him Dylan Thomas and we talked about John Ford's um, films which he was crazy about and I subsequently learned that he did that in all his lectures <laughs> A bit like Boris Johnson. <laughs> That's right. He had a performance mode. Uh, but then I... So I then thought, yes, it, they, these people are being themselves. They're not... I was slightly ashamed, made ashamed of myself by my parents because I didn't sort of conform in some way. I wanted to have a sex life. I was very damaging and wicked thing to want. Um, I wanted my own way. I wanted to wear my own clothes, black trousers, not a good idea. And so he, I found these people were unashamed of whom they were. And that was one of the great things that it important to learn in life if young people have been crushed, to be unashamed of who you are. Mm. It doesn't mean you can go out and, and become a thief and a vagabond or whatever, but you can go out and create pop music or uh, travel the world or whatever. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with the Youth Social Mobility Charity, Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the broadcaster and journalist, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past and Perfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the broadcaster and journalist, Joan Bakewell. Is that why you went into broadcasting? Because you wanted to be yourself, you wanted to ask defiant questions? I found uh, broadcasting was something that I could do because I knew I'd learned about the technology of sound, enough to get myself on the air. Uh, one of the jobs I had when I was a studio manager was to make sound effects for the radio pl- plays. And I got to know a lot of the actors. There was something called the BBC Rep in those days. I don't know whether it exists today. A company of about 30, 30 actors, and I got to know them all. Um, and I, had, I loved that and the nature of plays and how um, expressive it was of the things I was feeling. What were the most uh, extraordinary sound effects? Oh, um, I had to do the French Revolution at one time and do the execution of... Uh, um, the, the aristocrats, and I had to do the sound of the guillotine. It's a it's a knife cutting through a cabbage <laughs> from a great height. Whap through the cabbage. And were most women in the BBC and and in broadcasting were they treated as PAs and made to sort of get the coffee or the tea or? Yeah, well, yes, to all that. Um, but there was a different status of women, which is hard to explain or indeed to excuse because young people now say, well, why did you put up with it? I mean, how hopeless was that? But it was the received wisdom. I mean, um, it we was expected. Men were expected to make passes at women, any women. Women were meant in a way to be available, but good women resisted. So the social encounters were slightly teasing, slightly ambiguous, but if you got through that or found someone who didn't actually want to touch you up, um, was it were engaging? I found both at Cambridge, obviously, um, and learned to dealt, deal with it, learned to fend it off, um, because I was quite picky, um, and I didn't respond to the advances of many young people. But it was it was uh, the same at the BBC. You would expect people to um, touch you or reach for you. I mean, one of the tricks was when you get in a lift, stand with your back to the wall. Yeah. Um, because it was the the mode in which men and women related to each other. So secretaries would fetch the coffee, but then someone would grab them and sit them on their knee and say, come on, let's drink our coffee together. Nobody thought that was harassment or abuse. It was, or was it not seen as a sort of power play in any way? Because it must yes, have been was, older men. It must have been very hard to say to your boss, no, I don't want that. Um, well, you, if you did, they would say, what's wrong with you? It's such a spoiler sport. You sir, if you went to complain... Which I think people, as, as the 60s began, people, did, women did go and complain because men were very assertive. Women would go and you'd talk to the boss and say, I don't like this. And they'd say, for heaven's sake, it's only a bit of banter. What's wrong with you? No, just go away and put up with it. They, because they would be doing it. 
So, so there was no matter, nowhere to go where it was considered a bad form or anything. So what do you think now about the whole Me Too movement? Do you think it's gone too far and people need a bit more of a sense of humour? Or do you think actually it's good that uh, women are standing up to well, I think it? It's... I'm not really familiar enough with the d- degrees of the power of the Me Too movement, though I applauded its arrival, and, mm-hmm. but I don't follow it closely. I mean, I'm nearly 90. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's long in the past for me. And my daughters are married, and, and my daughter's married, and my son is married and happily married. So it doesn't cross my awareness of my daily life. What I see is women asserting themselves in, with full entitlement, and I admire that. Mm-hmm. And they, um, the laws have changed. There's a lot of... Um, uh, resistance, but you know, I knew Jimmy Savile, so believe you me, I think resistance is, is justified. Um, and did very... you know he was creepy? Well, he was always creepy, okay. but he wasn't. He wasn't sexually creepy towards me. He did at one point we were staying in a hotel doing a broadcast together. He did say, "Why don't you come round to my room?" And I, and did I thought, no one call him out? Nobody called him out. I mean, he was a star. He was, you know, he dined with the Queen. I mean, he was mm. beyond reproach. And anyway, he was just Jimmy. He was just silly, you know. Mm. You know, Jimmy. He's a fool. He's an act. He's a clown. Mm. Of course, he, he, apparently, he likes little girls a bit, but you know, for goodness' sake. So there was a general tolerance of him because he was such a powerful star mm. and carried the audience with him. And little girls flocked to be on his show because he was nice to them, um, you know, and teased them and hugged them, and which I thought thought was flattering. So the wor- it was a different world. Mm. It's very difficult to say to young people it was a different world without making them extremely cross. <laughs> but how did you get taken seriously? Because you did. I mean, I know you were called the thinking man's crumpet, but you were, you were thought of as being a serious player, weren't you? I got a big break. Um, when BBC Two started, it was full of inventive ideas, one of which was to have a late-night chat on a programme called Late Night Lineup, which was on every night of the week except Christmas Day. Every night, every night. Even weekends? Oh, yes, right through. I would do about four a week, and it was late-night chat, completely unscripted, and it was about usually about television, either what had happened tonight, was it good, did you like it, is the stars, and what do the critics say, or the, or the play on tomorrow night, let's discuss it, we'll get Sarah Lancaster on, whatever, you know, talk about it. Or the ethics of broadcasting and every kind of way television was working. And I was lucky enough to be cast as one of the four presenters of that programme, and I went on it for seven years. And so I was on the screen late at night, tiny audience, but with a sort of cult reputation and short skirts. And uh, I did that for about six years. <laughs> did you wear a short skirt right from the beginning, or did they ask well, you to? Well, the short skirts only came in when they invented tights. I mean, you couldn't have stockings and suspenders and short skirts. That just wouldn't go. Once they'd invented tights... Then you could have short skirts, and then, of course, I did have short skirts. And then, of course, I got the messages, letters. There was no email those days, but commenting on the fact. And then, then the press commented on the fact. Then Frank Muir commented on the fact. <laughs> um, I have to say, when you look back, if you see any pictures now, old black-and-white photographs, they're enormously seemly. I mean, Beyoncé say it is not. They are extremely correct and decorous. What did your mother say, though? Well, by that time, my mother was, um, she was ailing. She'd got leukaemia. I used to go and visit her. She was a bit bemused because the neighbours had all seen me and she wasn't sure what I was doing and why. So I really um, sort of nursed her and she was just tolerant of it. I don't know what she made of me. My father was enormously proud. The golf club admired me. (laughs) 
So did you prefer the 60s or the 70s, do you think? Well, I've always enjoyed wherever I am, really. I think there's no point in saying it wasn't so good, but there's no doubt the 60s was extremely exciting. One, because I had this wonderful job. I mean, it was just a dream job. And we were all young people making it up as we went along. Television was changing. You could do all sorts of extraordinary things. It was where um, the old Great Whistle Test came from, so all the jazz singers, the jazz bands came, all the pop groups came. You know, we had the Beatles on. We had all of them of different types. Uh, we had good talk. We engaged with ideas. So that was the prime part of my life. Um, I had two lovely children, which I was, who I was devoted to, and Michael. Then I had this sudden affair with Harold Pinter, which I accommodated within this life. Rather bewilders people in which the way I did it, but it managed perfectly well. So I have to say the, the 60s were rich in many ways. And how did you meet Harold Pinter? Well, he was working with my... In drama, my, Harold was writing plays and radio drama, where my husband, first husband, was head of plays, um, met Harold doing that, commissioned plays. So they were working together. I went along to rehearsals. That's where we all met and talked, including Harold's wife, Vivian Merchant, who was a wonderful actress. She was there. Um, we all got to know each other. Our children got to know each other. We all went to each other's homes and had dinners and um, socialised together. And then... Um, on the, uh, an occasion arose in which Harold and I were left alone and things shifted a little bit, a little bit, not much. And then within a short time after that, the last act of betrayal, the play that he wrote, the last act, happened, which is when he made an amazing speech, which is in the play, um, describing me and him. And at that point I thought, well, I mean, there's something extraordinary going on here. But it took, I mean, we didn't go plunging into it. I remember thinking, as he continued to talk about me and um, we got on so well, I remember thinking, I can say yes to this or I can say no to it. And if I say no to it at the age I am with my outlook, I will be saying that no to something so life-enhancing it will be a huge disappointment forever. So I'm not going to say no, I'm going to say yes. I remember having that conversation with myself and that was it. That's fascinating. And what did you think about your husband? Did, did he enter into the equation at all in your mind? Oh, yes, all the time. Mm. I mean, my whole, what was my life going to be like? I had no intention of leaving my husband and my children. I was going mm. to have an affair, which I did. Um, as you know, in the play Betrayal, there comes a point at which I tell Michael and he himself has already been having affairs, so he, isn't yet, he can't get sanctimonious about it. However, we did both say how much we wanted to stay together. There was no question about that. I was devoted to him and he to me. Uh, but this was some part of our lives that we didn't want to discontinue either. So we there was a lot of talk, and it was quite sympathetic talk, but it was quite um, episodic over a different period of time. I don't know what young people do anymore. I've no idea. Certainly, you couldn't have had the affair that I had with Harold because you have emails. Mm. People are on mobile phones. Yeah. Um, you can't just get into your car, drive round to a pub for a drink with someone for an hour, and then get back home. You can't do that because you can't park. Where are you? <laughs> any... You can't. You know, you can't do, you think do we've that. Made it kind too of difficult thing. to have an affair yeah. now, really. I don't know. How... Do people have affairs? Well, they clearly do. <laughs> the papers are full of it. But how on earth did they get round to it? Well, I think it sounded more difficult in your time because everyone was still a bit nervous about it. And 
you didn't have phones you couldn't actually just get to know someone on the phone first maybe that was more romantic though um, it was very local. I mean, it was just between Harold and I, and then we eventually had a sympathetic friend who lent us accommodation. And and then there was the event in which my husband found out about it, and we had the discussion about it. And we said, what are we going to do about it? Because he'd already had an affair, was having an affair. And we said, we'll both go on as we are. We'll go on. We're not giving this up. And it worked. It was all right for a good while, actually. So what was it like seeing it on stage? Oh, when Harold wrote, Harold wrote the play much later, mm. long after our affair had finished, he'd already met Antonia and fallen madly in love with her and she with him, and it was a wonderful um, marriage. And I was taking it, I was made privy to all this going on and became their friend, among many others. Um, and it was only then that he wrote the play about the betrayal, because of course it lived in his memory, but not in his life. Mm. Um, and he'd stayed a friend with me and did until his life. At the end of his life, but um, but strictly on a, a good friendship basis because we did have a lot in common to mm. talk about, and he was the most marvellous company, one of the wittiest, wisest. Because he had a reputation for being quite spiky. Oh, he was spiky with people he didn't like. Yes, intolerably <laughs> so. But he was with people... When he was in company with people he liked, a lot of actors and writers and people, he was enormously witty and mm. funny and marvellous company, tremendously handsome, wonderful voice. I mean, everybody adored his company. Have you still got letters and notes from him? Well, they're in the British Library. Are they? Are they? <laughs> yes, I, I collected them, of course. And um, Literary history. Mm. Well, they are sort of literary. Well, mm. they are the background mm. to the play, of yeah, course, exactly. now. Exactly. And, um, and what did your children feel? Were they too young to know at that stage? Do you know? I still don't know. Have you never talked to them about it? No. They were very young, and the, I, we were a busy family. There were a family of four, and we did all our holidays and things together. And why would I mention it? And was uh, it the reason for your breakup or not? It wasn't so much a breakup. It, it faded mm. away. I went to New York in '68 to report on the convention there, the uh, Democratic convention, which was causing a lot of political trouble. And I went to uh, report it for Late Night Lineup. And Harold was also in New York doing a play. And we met up there and we saw each other quite a lot. And it was all rather close and intense. And then suddenly, and then we, when we got back to London, something had died, something had been completed somehow. And I went back, I was still with my family and Harold with his, and we just sort of didn't quarrel. We said, it's kind of come to an end, hasn't it, really? I mean, we're both fond of each other, but we're not going to go on with this. So it wasn't so much that anybody threw the other over, or it's it just that it, it, we outgrew it. On the other hand, we stayed close friends to the very last weeks of his life. Uh, and that's many, many years. That was after he'd married to Antonio, married many years to Antonio. I used to see him about once a month, and we have, perhaps more often than that, we'd have a lunch and catch up. How are you? And what's your life like? So he was a very dear friend, very impressive man, of course, and he always sent me um, the script of his plays once he'd finished one. It came through the letterbox. Um, I had to approve it, though, because <laughs> we all had to approve what he did. He liked his friends to offer support. They, he certainly didn't want that criticism. And you wrote your book, The Centre of the Bed, that actually mentions it as well. Why did you write the books, and do you actually enjoy writing, do you think, as much as broadcasting? I like writing. I discovered that I did like writing, and I could do it with a certain fluency. Uh, not particularly inspired, but I've always read good writers, and I think, just listen to how they do it, and I go, what is the secret? I picked up one or through tricks, but not secrets, really. Um, so I did want to write, and I thought my life was quite interesting because it had uncovered, 
it had covered such a part of history, you know, before the war and all that kind of thing. And also my personal life kind of seemed to echo the changes that were going on, sort of sexist permissiveness, tolerance, families, tensions and so on. I thought that was also worth re worth reporting. Um, Harold Pinter wasn't at all pleased that I wrote it. I mean, he'd written Betrayal, but then he wrote and said, why have you written this book revealing all this? You have no right to do that. And I wrote back and said, have you read Betrayal? <laughs> Um, so he was displeased that I hadn't, but he, I mean, not angry or anything, just displeased in a way that Harold, mm. Harold's friends knew he would be, he could be displeased. So do you think we've become more open or more sanctimonious about sex and relationships? I have no idea now. No. I've, it's long been out of my life. I mean, I married again. I stayed married for 25 years. Um, that proved unhappy after a good 15 years of happiness started to go wrong and I, this by this time I wasn't going to tolerate uh, things I couldn't live with so I got a divorce that was a very acrimonious and saddening event a divorce on that scale is a bereavement mm. and what I bereaved I, I was bereaved of my hap what my happy marriage had died and that was grief stricken uh, however, I've lived on my own ever since from choice and that has see, suited me well because of course by that time I was in my 60s. And you aren't sort of hungry for passionate sex anymore. <laughs> Not all the time, anyway, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps occasionally. Um, but I made a lot of friends, have a lot of friends, of my generation, where we shared the same values. And, of course, it liberated me to take an interest in things like the politics I do now, um, the programmes that I make. I keep working, I keep engaged with ideas. Mm. That's the pivotal point that I learned at Cambridge and has lived with me and lives with me still that as you, as you ask questions, you yourselves are engaged with ideas mm. and that never dies. So that's very exhilarating. I mean, I read all the weekend magazines and um, I enjoy the new books that come out and new attitudes. I don't follow um, modern ethics at all because they're completely bewildering to me. <laughs> my, my grandchildren are in their 20s. They've got partners and, you know, engagements and so on. And that, they all take that in their stride. That seems quite normal and happy, but I don't think they were in any way governed by puritanical um, rulings that my parents, my mm. own parents, tried to impose because I brought my own children up to be tolerant and uh, enlightened, you know. And do you think there's more sexism or ageism in broadcasting, or both, or neither? I think it's very hard oh. growing old in our society um, for various reasons, most of them in economic, but socially I think the world is governed for those who are in power at any time. That's people who've got the jobs and the money, nice homes. Um, they've got children at school where they can have some say. You don't have a say in the world as you get older. You only ask. You ask for some money to live on. You ask for um, doctors to be available. You, but you don't feel an, you can make a strong contribution. Although I have to say the volunteer world... It's sustained by older people volunteering for free. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense that what you, you are wanted, but you are not wanted to the extent of being paid. So it's a rather ambiguous role. I think it's a very interesting changing generation now, being over 80 and what you're going to do with your life and mm -hmm. how to grow old. First thing is to stay fit, and the second is to stay articulate in your community. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are doing that, beginning to do that. And when you became a peer, were you sort of, feeling awkward about all the ermine and the rigmarole, or did you quite enjoy it, do you think? It was an well, I, was, I, I think you're a bit... Of, 
a bit overawed when you have to put on the ermine and take the oath. That's a twenty. That's a twenty-four hours of panic. You, but your family all turn up with enormous pride, sit in the balcony, and you take them to lunch. And people are very welcoming. That's the nice thing about it. People stop you in the corridor saying, you're very welcome, very pleased you're here. Um, I didn't quite know how to behave, but I did sit and listen a lot in order to know how to go about it. And you've been incredibly healthy all your life until your diagnosis. Do you feel there's... What is your secret, really? Do you feel that there's a sense that you always exercise? I think the secret well of being healthy is, depends a lot on your genes. Right. I mean, my grandparents all lived into their 80s, one into their 90s, um, apart from the ones who died, you know, young from industrial diseases. But I mean, they, the DNA is good, and I think it's a lot of it's genetic. Older people have older living children. Um, I'm also quite fastidious in I watch my health so if I get symptoms I, I act at once I don't wait for it to develop so I'm round at the doctors like a like a hawk you know, so I, I've broken a fingernail <laughs> and you must have to go to quite a few funerals now what's it like do you look at them and think oh, I might do that for mine or oh I do I, I always collect now from the from the funerals I go to I've got a collection of all the programs and I collect them together and I think I must go through them and see what the readings were. Do you know what the most popular reading of funerals is? And I've got a stack of about 25 of them. T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot is read regularly. Um, Which poem? The Wasteland? Four Quartets. Oh, Four Quartets. What um, are you going to have then? I think T.S. Eliot isn't quite my style. Mm. I'd, I'd rather have a little bit of Byron, something a bit racy, mm. something... A bit, a bit exciting about life, celebratory, full mm. of cherry blossom and laughter. And what about hymns? Oh, I think I certainly have Jerusalem. I've instructed my children that I want everyone on their feet singing Jerusalem. Very good. And will you be buried in Stockport or in London? I haven't really thought about that. No. I think I'd quite like to... Um, I think I would expect, but I haven't really thought about this, but to be cremated... Um, I'd quite like to have my ashes scattered somewhere significant, but I won't go into where because I'm sure they'd disapprove and say, you're not allowed to do that or you'll spoil that field or the daffodils will die or whatever. <laughs> but I like the idea of being scattered mm. in the countryside somewhere, somewhere just out there in the air and mm. the sunlight. And looking back, do you think you had the right priorities in life? Who's to tell? Who's to tell? Do you feel you've been successful? Oh, I don't, what success? Well, I'm. I feel I've been successful in making choices that have suited me, mm. and if they're if they're the wrong choices, wrong husband or whatever, to change it. Um, and I've always said to my children when when they were younger and having crises, if you put your head on the pillow at night, deeply, deeply unhappy and confused about your life, when you wake in the morning. Do something to change it. Do something tiny, whatever it is. Do something to change it, mm. because you've got to. Um, you've got to work your way out of it. There's a phrase that Harold Pinter always used, thinking got me into this and thinking's got to get me out of it. Mm. And I think that's a very good message for people. Contemplate yourself and learn to examine what it is. And it's no good saying, I wish I was happy or I wish I was you know, Mick Jagger. You're not going to be. You've got to be who you are and make what you can of it. And, that, and that's rewarding, but seems elusive when you're trying to work it out when you're a youngster. Mm. Really hard. And what would you say to your 18-year-old self when they were setting out from Stockport to go to Cambridge that first time? Don't look back. Go on. Go forward. I'd say that to everybody. Jane Bakewell, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to both of you. Thank you.
listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity, Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the broadcaster and journalist, Joan Bakewell. The producer was Lucy Ditchmond. If you enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app, where you can download our interviews with guests including Kirsty Orsop, James Dyson, Keir Starmer, and Rose Tremaine. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.